We're going to finish up our series on the seven churches, seven choices, and we're going to continue talking about the church at Laodicea. We broke this one into two parts. There's just so much in there that I felt like we needed to take a couple of weeks to look at this church, the church at Laodicea. I told you last week, Laodicea, as the seven churches go, may be the one by name that's most popular to people. Uh, even if you don't understand all the details of Laodicea, a lot of people have heard, especially if you've attended church and uh, for any length of time, you probably have heard about the church at Laodicea. And uh, it is the last, it's the number seven. I told you about it a, a little bit last week, uh, about its background and those sorts of things. I'll reiterate some of that here in just a bit. There were seven churches, of course. This is number seven. Uh, and um, there are only two churches out of our entire study that were uh, uh, not corrected by Christ. And uh, Laodicea is one of five that, frankly, Jesus had a very strong and stern message to. And so uh, we'll talk further about that. It was one of the most dysfunctional of all the churches. And you know what's interesting about dysfunction, whether it's in your life at your family, your job, or in the churches, most of the times when people or organizations are dysfunctional, the problem with that is they don't know that they're dysfunctional. That's one of the dysfunctions of dysfunctionalism, is you just don't know. And that was the case at Laodicea. They just didn't recognize uh, their, their pathologies and what was going on. And so Jesus writes a pretty strong message to them and the essential problem was they had just grown complacent. They had so become a part of the world system they were living in that they were no longer influencing the world. The world was influencing them. And they were good with that. And so they kind of grown uh, complacent and cold. A few years back, there was a man named Jeff Miller, and he beat out three other contestants to win his third consecutive ultimate couch potato title three other guys he beat out to get that award and it was sponsored by ESPN in Chicago and Miller actually set a Guinness's book of world records for non-stop television viewing and when they asked him about it he said it's all about determination uh, and he watched TV sports program programming for 72 straight sleepless hours his girlfriend I love when they asked her about it, she just gushed over her boyfriend and said, he's driven in everything he does. And uh, ESPN's Brian Hanover added to her comments and said, most people have no idea what it takes to win. They don't understand the endurance it takes to stay awake and control bodily issues. And Jeff is an expert at that. Uh, and as a result of winning this ultimate couch potato uh, contest, Jeff uh, received uh, a new recliner, a $1,000 gift card toward the purchase of a new television, uh, money for a year's worth of cable television, and then he received the ultimate couch potato trophy with an actual spud on top of it. And I read that, and I got to laughing about it and thought, this was a legitimate contest, you know. This guy, 72 straight hours watching sports. Some of you did that yesterday. You got it all 72 hours in one day. But he did this, and I thought, isn't that kind of ironic? He won an endurance award for complacency, if you think about it. Well, that's the story of the church at Laodicea. They were complacent. And they were good at it. But Jesus was not pleased with them at all. And so I want us to look again. If you're physically able to, I want us to read the story again of the church at Laodicea, or the message, I should say, uh, the letter written to them. Uh, I want you to uh, follow along with me, beginning in verse 14, chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich. 
and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And Father, as we've prayed through all of these messages, that statement, let us hear what you have to say to the churches there, but to the church today. To us here, we pray that you would speak to us, God. And I pray, Father, as you speak to us, you will convict us, you will correct us, and you'll transform us, Father. And so, Lord, today our ears are open, and we ask that you speak into our ears and that it go down to the core of our soul, and that, Father, we obey you, and that we hear and we respond. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, uh, I told you a little bit about Laodicea last week, and if you didn't get that message, I would urge you to go back and listen to that message online, because really it'll be helpful to further understanding the message that I'm going to share with you uh, today. And you can get it at our website, you know, uh, on a, a video on demand or whatever, but I would urge you to go back and listen to that message so you'll get a fuller understanding of what's going on in Laodicea. But Laodicea was located, it's the southern and most eastern city of the seven um, churches that we've looked at. I told you last week, it's set at the kind of intersection of two main uh, trade routes. And as a result, it was an extremely and extraordinarily wealthy uh, area Laodicea was, and particularly the church. Uh, it was known the area was known for its luxurious black wool. That was kind of the they, they, it was a textile industry that had made them all very uh, very wealthy. There were other things. They had a medical school there uh, as well, and so they were skilled in those sorts of things. But uh, Jesus said the thing about Laodicea in terms of the church was that it made him sick to his stomach. Now, when Jesus gets sick to his stomach at something, that's pretty bad. Wouldn't you agree? And he looked at these believers who weren't getting it. They were so complacent. They weren't getting it. And he's saying, look, you don't understand. You're, you're making me sick because you're not living out of the purpose for which I created you as a church and as a people. And what I want to do this morning is I want to give you three more thoughts uh, to consider about Laodicea. Now, let me begin by kind of reviewing. It's on your outline, the first three things that we talked about. We talked about the faithful character of Christ. That's how he starts his message to the church at Laodicea. And he talks about uh, his character. He is the faithful and true witness. What is he doing here? What Jesus is doing is he's about to deliver a pretty serious blow to them. And so he wants to first establish that he has the credentials to to give them the message that he's going to give them. In other words, it's not Johnny come lately, come out and say, you know, I want to tell you folks a few things. That's not what's going on. This is Jesus, and he says, I'm the faithful and the true witness. In other words, I have the right and the authority to address the issues that you're battling with. Now, not only was that true in Laodicea, you would agree with me, that's true of us today, right? That Jesus has the authority to address any pathologies or dysfunctions, spiritually speaking, in our life. He does. And he does that typically through his word. And so uh, uh, we see, first of all, the character of Christ. The second thing we talked about was the shameful condition of the church. They were lukewarm. Jesus identifies their issue. They were lukewarm. They had become complacent, and they were no longer uh, the dynamic uh, people of God. And he said, I wish that you were hot or cold. And I told you last week, and if you want a fuller understanding of this, go and get the message. But I explained something because that, that verse is often misunderstood where Jesus says, I wish you were cold. People say, why would he want us to be spiritually dead? It's not what he's talking about. Remember, the cool streams flowed out of Colossae and they brought refreshment to the area of Laodicea. And warm springs flowed out of Hierapolis, which is a few miles to the north of the city. Both of these were brought in by aqueducts into the city of Laodicea. So there was cold, refreshing water, and there was hot, healing waters. And Jesus was saying, I wish you were one or the other. I wish you were refreshing, spiritually refreshing, 
uh, or I wish you were uh, uh, spiritually hot and, and healing and helpful, but, uh, but I'd rather you be one or the other because those are both useful but not lukewarm. There's nothing good really about lukewarmness is what Jesus is saying. And, and so um, he talks about this lukewarm condition. And then we talked about number three, the boastful confusion of the church. In verse 17, they bragged about who they were. Oh, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. And Jesus diagnoses them and says, Not, you don't realize that you are wretched and pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And so they were boasting about something that was not reality for them. Go back to the statement I made earlier. The problem with a lot of dysfunction, spiritually speaking, in our life is that when we are there, we don't realize it. And they didn't. They misunderstood that because they had prospered, that must mean they were spiritually superior to others because God certainly wouldn't prosper them if they weren't doing everything right. Wasn't the case at all. So Jesus cuts through and he says, let me tell you who you really are. And that leads to the fourth thing that I want to show you uh, today, and that is the needful counsel of Christ. Verse 18, notice what Jesus said, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, to, that you can be rich, white garments, to clothe yourself in, and salve to anoint your eyes. Uh, Jesus had the counsel that they needed. He has the counsel that you need. You may be going through some spiritual issues or spiritual dryness. Or, and here's the first thing you should do. Call out to him, God, what do I need? What do I need to move from my lukewarm kind of condition to a hot or to a cold refreshment spiritually? And so he had the counsel for them, and he gives them counsel. Counsel's important. We all need counsel. We have people around us. We may not say, I need counsel, but most of us have probably asked people for counsel before. Could you give me some counsel? I do a lot of counseling. That doesn't make my counseling always accurate, but the point is we have a source of accurate counsel. And when Jesus says, I counsel you, listen, some of you remember back, I guess it was maybe in the 70s or 80s, I, I think there was a, a brokerage firm called E.F. Hutton. Does anybody ever remember E.F. Hutton? Okay, a lot of you remember E.F. Hutton. And they had this series of commercials, and it ran for, I don't know, a couple of years or so. And uh, it was a very effective uh, PR campaign for them. And it, what it would show would be typically they'd be in a big area and people are talking. You can't hardly hear each other think, you know, and you, the crowd's all talking and everything. And they focus in on one guy and he's talking to somebody else. He says, well, my broker is E.F. Hutton. And when E.F. Hutton speaks, and boom, suddenly there would be just complete dead silence. Y'all remember that? It's, and all these people talking to When E.F. Hutton speaks, and everybody would freeze, and they would turn to wherever this guy is, because he's about to reveal what E.F. Hutton thinks. And everybody would turn, and they would do this, because they wanted to know, what does he think? Whatever he thinks is good. Well, I want to tell you something. The truth is, Jesus was saying, I want to give you some counsel. When Jesus says, I want to give you some counsel, you know what our response should be? What does Jesus say? Not what does the world say. Not what does my best friend say. Not what do people closest to me say. What does Jesus say? And by the way, we have the luxury, 2,000 years later, of having a copy of the counsel of God. And so we, look, that's one of the reasons you need to stay in the Word, because it's going to be full of counsel to you. And it's amazing how, how appropriate God's Word will be in your circumstances. You'll, you'll be saying, God, I, I need to hear from you. I want to tell you something. If you'll stay in His Word, you'll hear from Him. Because He wants you to hear Him. Hello? He wants you to have His counsel. God doesn't play, hey, look, He's not playing hide and seek with His, his counsel. We were, we were in Nashville for a few days. Uh, with uh, keeping our grandkids, our, our daughter and son-in-law were in a wedding out west, and so we went up there to keep the grandkids on. Well, our oldest has just turned four years old, and we were outside, and uh, uh, he was running around. He's hyper, and he wanted to play hide-and-seek. And so his version of hide-and-seek is to go and get behind the bush while I'm watching him go and get behind the bush, and then yell, hey, Pops, come find me. And uh, it wasn't real hard to do. 
and I would act like, oh, where, where are you, Bodie? Where, you know, I'm doing this sort of stuff, but I knew exactly where he was. I want to tell you something. God is not playing hide and seek. God kind of says, in fact, didn't kind of say, in Jeremiah, the Lord says, if you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. I will be found by you. Isn't that an amazing passage, Jeremiah 29? If you'll seek me with all your heart, you will find me. God wants to be found. And so God wants you to have his counsel. I mean, if God isn't, if, if God's hiding, he's hiding in the bush right there where you can see him. Because he wants you to have the counsel. Right? And so Jesus says, listen, listen, uh, church, Laodicea, Christian, I've got some counsel for you. Take it seriously. And it's important because much of the course of your life and my life is the result of the input we receive and the counsel we receive into our life, whether it's from God, from others, and it has a dramatic, that's why counsel is, the right counsel is so very important. And like all seven of the churches, Laodicea had a choice to make, and Jesus gives them counsel so they will make the right choice having declared to them the truth about their condition, about their behavior, about their arrogance and their ignorance, Jesus offers them counsel, and that counsel would repair them if they would take it. It would redeem the lost, and it would restore them to spiritual health. You see, the counsel of Christ is given to us because He loves us. And so He says, look, I'm, if you'll listen to me, I'll help you get it right. Why? Because I love you. Uh, and, and his counsel, do you remember how the prophet Isaiah, before Jesus ever arrived, do you remember how the prophet Isaiah described, described Jesus? This is how he described him, prophetically. He says, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and listen to this, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You've heard that before, haven't you? That was the, I, that's, Isaiah 9, verse 6, that's how the prophet, uh, a thousand years before Jesus arrived, that's how he described him. And did you notice he said, his name will be Mighty Counselor. Now, a lot of people, they don't, they don't read this verse right. They read it saying, his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. That's not accurate. Here's how it should be read. His name uh, shall be uh, called Wonderful Counselor. That is descriptive. It's not wonderful and counselor, though it is, he is wonderful and he is a counselor. The phrase there is wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace. He's a wonderful counselor. That's how the Bible describes him. That's why you need to look to him for, for all of your counsel. And his counsel involved their need for three spiritual items. Number one, he tells, tells them to buy uh, spiritual uh, gold. Why would he say that? Now, you have to remember, Jesus is taking what they've come to depend on, and he's showing a contrast, a spiritual contrast. So these were wealthy folks. They had, they had gold, most likely, or they had at least wealth, and they were depending on their wealth. Remember it said in verse 17, hey, we, look at us. We have prospered. We don't need anything. We can take care of ourselves. So Jesus says, you don't recognize your condition. What you need to do is take my counsel and you need to buy spiritual gold instead of trusting in earthly wealth. And by the way, this isn't Jesus attacking earthly wealth. That's not the point. The point is that their hearts were bent uh, to depend upon their earthly wealth instead of depending upon Jesus. Does that make sense? And so he says, you need to buy spiritual gold. Gold represents the things that last forever. That's why, you know, in the last uh, 10 years, we've been hearing a lot of investment people saying, buy gold, buy gold, buy gold. Why? Because gold endures. Gold lasts. Gold is the standard and has been the standard for thousands upon thousands of years for, uh, for economies. And so he's saying it endures forever. Spiritual gold is like that. What is spiritual gold? It is the treasures that you, um, that you lay up in heaven. Jesus said this, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth because moth and rust destroy, thieves can break in and steal them, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where, listen, 
This is Jesus' main point. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. And that's the point he's trying to make to them. So if, you're, if your heart is bent toward earthly gold, then that earthly gold will control your heart. But he says if your heart is bent toward uh, uh, eternity, he said you'll be serving God in such a way that you'll be laying up treasures. That's spiritual gold. I'm fully convinced that when we get to heaven, we're going to be surprised at what we didn't lay up and should have but we're also going to be a bit surprised by, by maybe some people come up and say, thank you for investing in me. And you go, I didn't know I invested in I did. And it may be through some work of service or ministry. It may be through Ridgecrest or something, some way that you've served God or something and somebody's life was impacted. And you say, I, didn't, I never even met you. I didn't know. Yeah, but this happened. And because this happened, this happened. Because this happened, it impacted my life. And I'm here today because... Boom, boom, boom. You see what I'm saying? That's heavenly treasure that you lay up. But you got to set your mind, as Paul said, on things uh, above. So he tells them to buy spiritual gold. Then he tells them to buy white garments. Now watch this, okay? I want you to get this. Remember that one of the major industries in Laodicea was the production of textiles. They were known for their clothing. You might say Laodicea was probably kind of like Rodeo Drive, in uh, Hollywood, where all the finest clothiers uh, uh, have shops, and, and Laodicea was known for it. In particular, it's luxurious black wool. They produce that. Now, watch this: luxurious black wool. We got this wool. We sell this. It's made us wealthy. Uh, we have the finest clothes and that sort of stuff. And Jesus says, "You need to buy. You need to buy garments, white garments for me." Isn't that interesting? Black luxurious wool is what they were known for. Jesus says, "Buy a white garment." Clothe yourself in my wardrobe, a spiritual wardrobe. What is the spiritual wardrobe? The spiritual wardrobe represents a garment of righteousness. And we know that because the Scripture teaches that. White equals redeemed saints. In Revelation chapter 19 and verse 14, it represents redeemed saints in Revelation 7 and 13, Revelation 4 and verse 4. And in Mark 3, on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus was... Uh, transformed before the disciples it says this listen and his that is Jesus his clothes became radiant intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them and so it is a garment of righteousness and Jesus tells them look you're you're putting your emphasis on your earthly garments but you need to think about spiritual garments garments of righteousness and then he tells them to buy salve for their eyes Now, remember, one of the problems Jesus identified is that they were blind, right? They were blind to who they really were. They thought uh, thought, uh, more highly of themselves than they ought to. And so Jesus uh, says, you're blind. Now, okay, stay with me for a second. Remember I said they had a medical school there? You know what scholars tell us that medical school focused on? Eye ailments. Isn't it interesting? There's nothing coincidental with Jesus. And so he says, you've got a medical school. You focus on eye problems. You need to address your own eye problem. You need to address your, your, your spiritual eye problem. And he says, you need to get from me salve that will enable you to, to cause the scales to drop from your eyes that will heal your eyes. Well, and, and so you'll see the truth because they were blind. By the way, this is the salve. This is what will heal our eyes. When we become spiritually blind, you say, well, I'm not spiritually blind. I hope that's the case for all of us. But you can become spiritually blind. Even Christians, because he's writing to the church, isn't he? They had become spiritually blind. And you and I can too. What will heal? What will cause the scales to fall? The truth. Where does the truth come from? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus, who also said, I am the Word in John chapter 1. The Word gives us the truth. The living Word of Christ, the the written Word of Christ, the Logos, gives us His Word. And that Word becomes a salve to our eyes to heal our spiritual blindness. You know, it's easy for us. We're real good. Most of us are real good. I know I am at diagnosing somebody else's spiritual eye problem. 
If they could only see, they just don't see it. They just, but you know what? I'm not so good in diagnosing my own spiritual life problems. And Jesus understood that because you remember the story where he, or, or the statement he makes, why do you try to cast the speck out of your brother's eye and don't even see the beam in your own eye? There's just something about us that are real, we're real good uh, at diagnosing other people's issues and neglecting our own. And, and even if we get a glimpse of our own, we'll often say, yeah, I understand that. We excuse uh, ourselves what we demand in others. But God knows my heart. God knows that I, I, I don't want it this way. But, but, okay, so Jesus is dealing with their spiritual blind condition. And he said to them this, he says, the light is among you for a little while. While you have the light, walk in the light, lest darkness overtake you. Because the one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. The fact is, the ISAB means the, that we, we have God, the God-given ability to see spiritual truth for what it is. They saw little, if any, of Christ himself. Now think about this, These were, this was called the church of believers, but they saw very little of Christ because of their spiritual blindness. They, they didn't see their need for Him, they even say it in the passage, they, they didn't see what His presence meant uh, uh, with them and His power, they didn't understand or see what it could do for them and the church. They were blinded to their own need, they were blinded to Christ, they were blinded to the great difference that He could make in their life. They needed His counsel to correct the course of their life. And we do too, don't we? And that leads me to the fifth thing I want you to see, the painful compassion of Christ. Look at verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. As hard as it is to receive sometimes, God disciplines us from love and not from spite. You know, we often struggle when, when there's discipline in our life. We feel like we've been, we've been wrong. But when God disciplines you, He never does it because He's He's angry at you or He's trying to get revenge on you. Guess why He does it? He does it because He loves you. In fact, there are three different words in the Greek language uh, for love that are in English. We just say love equals love, but in Greek they would use different words to denote the different kinds of expression of love. There's eros, which is physical love. There is agape, maybe you've heard that one before, that's kind of the unconditional love of God, I love you no matter what. And then there's a third word that's used in the New Testament called phileo. Phileo is, um, uh, in, in particular in this passage, is an expression of a kind of uh, loving, fatherly love. It's like this family kind of love. It's like a dad who loves his child uh, so much. And that's the word that's used here is phileo. Um, and, and it means this fatherly kind of love. And when God disciplines, he does so out of this love and compassion he has for us. And by the way, the statement that he makes here, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, that is a warning statement. That is God saying, look, I want you to know if you don't, if you don't get your act together, there's discipline coming. Why? Because I love you. I love you and there's going to be discipline. Uh, it is a statement about, uh, it is a statement to warn them uh, if they continue to reject his loving correction in their life. And so he says to them, be zealous and repent. Now, probably, my guess is um, most of us in here, at some point in time in our life, uh, we have We've had our moms or dads uh, say something like this to, if you don't take out the trash, or if you don't clean your room, or if you don't uh, do your homework, then you're not going to get to fill in the blank, or you're not going, or you're going to be grounded, or something like. How many of you ever heard a line like that in your life? Okay, come on, raise your hand. You're in church. Don't be lying. Okay, probably most of us. Now, a lot of you in here are now old enough to say, not only did I receive that line, I have now used that tactic with my own children, right? If you don't, this is what's going to happen. This is a consequence of it. That's what Jesus is saying to them. He's saying, look, 
if you don't deal with this, if you don't do what I've asked you to do, there are going to be some consequences. But you can repent and respond, and guess what? That changes everything. Now, when a parent would do that sort of thing, or when you've done that sort of thing, yeah, I think it's, I think it's uh, uh, truthful to say that you didn't do it out of evil. You didn't say to your kid, if you don't do this, this is what's going to happen. <laughs> you, it probably wasn't evil intentions. It probably wasn't because you say, I'll get great satisfaction out of this, out of disciplining you. In fact, most parents, I think if you take a poll of most parents, they would say, I'd rather not have to do anything. I just wish I didn't have to do anything. And by the way, there are some parents that take that approach. I'm just not going to do anything. I hope it works out. And I want to tell you something. I've never seen it work out. Because we are... Rebellion is bound up in the heart of a child, the Bible says. If we are left our own, that's why kids are given to their parents. It's because they need direction and they need the course that, a, that discipline brings into their life. By the way, just a footnote, you didn't ask for this, but if you want to know what the problem in your culture is today, we gave up all the boundaries. There are no boundaries. You just do, everybody does what's right in their own eyes. And so there are no boundaries. That it is a, your culture is a picture of what happens when there's no discipline. And when there's no discipline, everybody just blames somebody else. Victimization. Victim, well, it's not my fault. You, you know, um, uh, somebody said something to me when I was young, and it, it warped my psyche. And, and so I, I'm not responsible uh, and so that's what happens, see, if you don't have discipline in your life. Most parents would rather not have to do it, but sane parents know that discipline is essential to keeping our lives on the right path. All right, you get that. I know you do. But that's, if that's true in, in our earthly life, think about how much more so that's true when God needs to discipline us to keep us spiritually on course because that has eternal implications. And when Christ disciplines you, it means two things. And the Bible is very clear about both of these. Number one, it means if you're, if you're, some of you watching, listening in this live audience, some of you might be going through a discipline. Christ may be disciplining you because you haven't responded to, to him or you haven't obeyed him or something. And he's disciplining you. And let me tell you what discipline means. Number one, it means that you belong to Christ. Now, you may say, well, whew. It's tough, but it means you belong to Christ. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. That's what it says. That means you belong to him. Now, it doesn't mean God's looking, I'd like to be able to discipline you. That's not what it means, but it means if he's having to discipline you, and by the way, in the course of this life, spiritually speaking, sooner or later, he'll have to discipline you. Uh, no, there, there are no perfect followers of Christ, right? And so we need the discipline that he can bring back into our life spiritually. And so if, if that's going on, maybe right now you're experiencing some of that. If you're not, you will. If, you, if you're not experiencing it now, you probably have experienced it. It means this. Look, you can at least say, thank you, Jesus. At least I know I belong to you, right? The second thing, if Christ is disciplining you, the second thing it means is, now listen, this is good. The first is you belong to him. The second is you are loved by him. If Christ is disciplining you, it means he loves you. The discipline of Christ in your life is the supreme act of his compassionate love. You see, he knows everything about you. He knows everything about you, and he always knows what's best. And he knows what's bad for you. And so, if you walk down the bad path, and path, he's going to bring things to, because he loves you. And you, look, you ought, here's what you ought to worry about. If you know you're on a path that is not acceptable to Christ and there's no discipline in your life, that ought to scare you. Because that means you don't belong to him. He said it, I didn't. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have, in, have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without, here it is, listen. If you are left without discipline, 
in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But He, God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share in His holiness. As I said, Alice and I, we, uh, we kept the, grand, the grandsons for a couple of three days uh, this past week up in Nashville. And, and I have to be honest, something, we, we use the word no more than we wanted to. Um, now, it wasn't uttered from hate, because we, we love those little boys so much, but it was because of our great love for them. And sometimes when we would say no, they gave us that look, you know, that look that I, I don't, why not, Pops? I, I don't under, understand. And I want to tell you, that's a tough look, because, because I decided a long time ago that when I became a, grand, when I became a grandfather, that there weren't going to be any boundaries. I've already done that work. I'm just going to let them just do your thing. And Pops will just high five. But you know, um, I found out that even grandparents can't do that. And so Alice and I used the word no a whole lot more than we wanted to. And we heard the question, why, Pops? Why? Well, have you ever, have you ever thought, I don't know how to explain something to somebody? And you know, I've said this before, so we use that famous line, trust me. But a four-year-old doesn't get that. And so we say, no, why, Pops? Well, because Pops knows. But why, Pops? You know, that, 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 that. And, so, and, and so I realized there were times when I, now, I, for example, no, you can't stick that candy up your nose. Why? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because you see, if you stick candy up your nose, you could inhale that candy. That candy then could go into your respiratory system, maybe pass on down through uh, your throat into your lungs, and then create aspiration issues. And uh, so, for that reason, does that make sense? I know what he would have done. He would have done, but why, Pops? Right? So you know there are times when you just can't, you don't, you, you just say no. And I, I'm not going to explain it, just no. And sometimes you, you have to elevate your voice because they know when, no, don't do that, doesn't really mean no. So you have to say no, no, you can't do that. And you can't stick that candy up Pops' nose either. Well, let me tell you why, because if you sit, you know, you know that, that there's just some things in our game. Now, think about this, class. Sometimes <clears throat> the Scripture says there's no discipline that seems right. There's sometimes God disciplines us, and He's trying to keep our path correct, but we think, why, God? I know other people that, that, that you haven't disciplined for this. That might, there might be another reason for that. So why? And God doesn't go, well, let me explain it in the grand eternal cosmic scheme of things. Let me explain. Do you know Jesus told his own disciples, there are many other things I'd like to say to you, but you couldn't handle them. Sometimes God says no, or God says, I'm disciplining you. Why? Because I know what's best for you, and there's no way that I can explain it all to you. You get it? There's one last thing I want to show you this morning. And that's the hopeful call of Christ. Verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now this verse has, you know, I showed you earlier in this passage about the hot and cold, how that has been misunderstood by a lot of folks as they teach this passage. Well, this verse has also been misunderstood. There are a lot of people who use this verse or take this verse to mean Jesus is standing outside of the door of the heart of the person that doesn't know him. And he's knocking on the door. I want to come in and save you. Now, I, look, Jesus wants to save you. If, you're, if you've never trusted Christ, the most important thing you can do is call on him. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But that's not what's going on here. Now, listen, let me, let me, let me see how well you've done this so I don't have to go back next week and preach this again. 
Who is this letter addressed to? The church. It's not addressed to lost people, is it? When Jesus says he's talking to the church here, I stand at the door and knock. He's not talking about, now there were, I think there were probably plenty, if not most of Laodicea was probably lost. I don't know, but there was certainly a remnant in there that was saved. And Jesus says, if anybody, if anyone, and by the way, in the Greek, that's singular. I'll tell you what that means here in just a second. He says, if anyone, he's talking to the church. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about them getting it together spiritually, getting back on course with him. He's talking about, I want, to, I want us to reestablish the kind of fellowship that we had. You see, when you're a Christian, you don't lose your salvation. You can't lose your salvation, but you can put a wedge between your fellowship with God. And that's why we confess our sins. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You say, well, if I've already been clean to my sin, why am I doing You know what that, that is about? That's not about confessing sin so you can get saved again. Jesus died for all your sin. It's about confessing sin so you can restore your fellowship with your Savior. And so he's saying, look, I want to come in. I want to come in. I, I want to come in. I want us to restore. I want us to have what we used to have in terms of fellowship and my presence with you. I want to eat with you. That's about fellowship. I, I want to dine with you and you with me. I want us to have the dynamic in our relationship that we used to have, but you've got to open the door. I don't know if some of you have seen this. If not, you ought to go look it up. There's a classic picture on this verse from, I don't know, ages ago, and it shows Christ standing at a door and he's knocking. And if you notice carefully in the picture, there's no doorknob. And the reason there's no doorknob there is because it has to be open from the inside. And it represents the choice. We have seven churches, seven choices. We have a choice uh, to make. Are you going to open the door? And that's what he was saying to them. And by the way, if you are not in fellowship with God, if you're not walking obediently to God, God is, Jesus is knocking. If you're a believer, he's knocking. Saying, and by, the, the idea is urgency, persistency, urgency and by by the way pounding pounding on the door but he's not going to push it over you got to open the door and he and he talks about uh, us hearing the call and and that call there are a couple of things worth noting they had a present option mean, meaning this it was in real time he was knocking christ is always in real time if you're, if you're not walking in fellowship with him right now, guess what he's doing? He's pounding. You have a present option. It's right now. Right now is what counts. You know, I keep my notes on my iPad there. On the back of my iPad, I had something engraved that I heard from a guy many years ago. It says, right now counts forever. And that's what Jesus says to us when we're, I'm pounding on, I want to restore our fellowship. I, I'm pounding right there because right now counts forever. And so what you do right now is what matters. Not what you're going to do, not what you think you will do, but what you do right now. It's a present option. You, and, and the point is that they had to decide right then, right now, what am I going to do? And the second thing that his call involves is a personal opportunity. Now, the message was for the entire church, right? But notice this. I told you I'd, I'd, I'd clarify something. He says, if anyone... The message is for the church, but he says, if anyone, do you know that's singular? So what he's saying is, if anyone will open the door. It doesn't have to be a collective thing. It doesn't have to be everybody say, all right, let's all go. Did y'all hear that? Let's all go and open the door together. That's not, he says, if anyone, just one person. I, you know what I think that reminds us of? That it might be one person that becomes the key to a, a move of God. And it may be you in this place. And, and God is saying, if you open the door, you will open the door to my presence. I'll come in. And you just might be the spark, the catalyst that causes him to move through the entire congregation. So it is corporate. He wants to move in the congregation. But you know how God typically moves in the congregation? One, two, three, four five, six. He moves through us. We are the church. 
And so he moves through us. And so they not only had some, a present option, they had a personal opportunity. And so you have to choose. Will you listen to the knock? You choose, am, am I going to listen to the knock? Now, it's one thing to listen because you have another responsibility, and that is to choose to open the door. You can choose to listen and not open the door, right? You can even do something like this. Well, I know God is tugging on my heart. I know God is trying to move me, trying to correct the course of my life and everything. I hear him knocking. I'm just not opening the door. I'm just not going to open the door. See, you have to choose to listen. If anyone hears, he says, that's a choice. And then opens, that's a choice. You choose to hear and then you choose to respond, and that is to open the door. Jesus took his stand outside of the church door. And he kept knocking and knocking, waiting for someone to open the door. By the way, you know the fact that he just persists, it's present tense. That means he's, he's, he knocked and keeps on knocking. Do you know what that reminds us of? His enduring, patient love. Because I want to tell you something. I don't know about you, but I think I might have knocked a few times and said, they're not letting me in. Wouldn't you? How long you been knocking? I don't know. I like four or five minutes. They won't open the door. And I know there are people in there because I can hear them. Ever been there? Boy, when the preacher knocks on the door, <laughs> I've had where I suddenly, you can hear people whispering, it's a preacher. I've heard it. It's a preacher. Don't go to the door. I have to tell you, I want to I kind of peer around through a window and go, I hear you. You know? But I, I don't think I would wait. I would just knock for a while and then leave. But this is a picture of Jesus saying, I love you so much. Another expression of his love, I love you so much. I'm pounding, I'm pounding, I'm pounding. Open the door, open the door, open the door. You say, well, he's Jesus. He could knock the door down. He could, but he won't. You know why? Because he wants you to make the choice to let him in, to establish and reestablish fellowship. And by the way, that invitation is still open today to believers and to churches that no longer have the fire of God in their life, that have just become institutional instead of movements. So what's the lesson? It's there on your, your outline. What is the lesson? It's very simple. All of this gets remedied when we see ourselves as God sees us. I mean, that was, they were complacent because they didn't see themselves the way God saw them. And your life, my life, we become complacent spiritually when we stop seeing ourselves the way God sees us. Maybe today, you know, just talking about restoring fellowship, maybe today you'd say, well, I, my issue isn't a fellowship issue. My, my, honestly, mine's not about personal revival. I've never been bibled. You know, you can't have revival if you haven't had Bible, that means you haven't come to Christ. And maybe, maybe you've just been kind of going through religion. And I want to say to you the invitation of Christ is that come, follow me. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. That may be what's really going on in your life. You need to personally accept him so that you can have a Savior with whom you can have fellowship with. Let me close by telling you a story. Uh, a pastor uh, told about one of his church members who was an attorney who who after meditating on several scripture passages decided to do something kind of outstanding. He decided to cancel the debts of all of his clients that owed him money for more than six months. Pretty good, right? If you owe me money, you've owed me, uh, owed me money for more than six months, I'm going to cancel your debt. And so here's what he did. He actually drafted a letter explaining his decision to forgive um, 
the person's debt, and he gave his biblical basis for that, and he sent 17 debt-canceling letters via certified mail. Certified mail, you know, you have to sign for certified mail. 17 letters to 17 people saying, I'm canceling your debt. One by one, the letters began to return, unsigned and undelivered. Now, I guess it's possible that a couple of them had moved away, but probably not likely. 16 out of those 17 letters came back to him because the recipient refused to sign for the letter or open the envelopes because they were afraid it was going to be a statement of a lawsuit against them for their debt when it was just the opposite. And so instead of accepting the debt-canceling letter, they rejected it. Well, for the last two weeks, we've been looking at a letter to a church, church at Laodicea, to Christians at Laodicea. We've been looking at, at a letter, but the good news is for us, we opened the letter. We opened the letter. And because we opened it and we read the letter, we can see what God's concerns were. And maybe like the people in the church at Laodicea, you have a, a condition in reading the letter. You recognize that you have a condition of lukewarmness. And He is giving you an invitation to renew fellowship with Him or to receive His, uh, his offer to be pardoned from your debt of sin. What makes it powerful is whether or not you accept it. If you reject it, it's just like taking that letter and sending it and saying, I'm not signing for it because <laughs> I, I don't want to have to deal with the contents. But if you accept it and say, wow, the incredible love of God, I'm going to accept the offer. I'm going to deal with, if it's lukewarmness, I'm going to deal with that. If it is lostness, I'm going to deal with that. Because he has given me an option. What you do makes all the difference in your life eternally. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for the richness of your word. And Father, I, I know probably many of us see ourselves at times as Laodiceans. I, you know, Lord, I, I ask you to show me if I'm a Laodicean. Help me to see that, Lord. And, and accept the offer, Father, before you have to take consequential measures to, to get me on the right course. So, Father, I pray that for all of us this morning, that if, if there's something that we need to deal with, that we deal with it, Father, so we can see ourselves and respond the way you call us to. And for those who are watching or listening by television or live stream or radio, Father, I pray that you give them right now in this moment that, that awareness of where they are with you. And Father, I, I rejoice that you love us and are so patient with us, compassionate toward us. Even when the discipline is painful, it's still you love us. And so, Father, let us hear and let us obey you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me before we're gone for our invitation? I'm going to be here at the front, and we'll have staff members on the aisles. And I would like to invite you. You know, there are a lot of ways you can make a decision. You can make a decision to trust Christ by calling on Him. As I said, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We'd like to help you uh, pray and call on Him. But you can do that right where you are. And by the way, in this live audience, you can indicate if there's a decision. You can There's a little panel. You can check that decision. You can take that to our Welcome Center. You can drop that in the offering baskets, and we'll, we'll take it from there, okay? <clears throat> but you may be here, and you just want to pray. Come and pray. You're praying for somebody, praying about something. Use the altar. Use it. Bend your knees before Him. You may say, Pastor, I'd just like to join the church. I know Christ is my Savior. I want to be a part of the family. You need a family to belong to. Come and just say, we'll take care of all of those things. Whatever it may be, you slip out. You slip out. You come this way. We'll be here to receive you. Balcony, ground floor. Are you ready? Spradley leads us right now. Slip out. Come on. <laughs>